did on the cross for us. Thank you for the precious blood that uh, still flows from Calvary, and we're thankful for that. Uh, Lord, I pray that uh, today as we uh, get our minds focused on the cross, uh, Lord, I pray that uh, you would use this in our lives to draw us closer to you, to cause us to be more thankful for what you did for us, and to cause us to desire to serve you even more fervently in the days ahead. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. In his book, Written in Blood, Robert Coleman tells the story of a little boy whose sister needed a blood transfusion. The doctor explained that she had the same disease that the boy had recovered from two years earlier. Her only chance for recovery was a transfusion from someone who had previously conquered the disease. Well, since the two children had the same rare blood type, the boy was the ideal donor. Would you give your blood to Mary? The doctor asked. Johnny hesitated, and his lower lip started to tremble. Then he smiled and said, sure, for my sister. Well, soon the two children were wheeled into the hospital room, Mary pale and thin, but Johnny robust and healthy. Neither spoke a word, but when their eyes met, Johnny grinned. As the nurse inserted the needle into his arm, Johnny's smile began to fade, and he watched the blood flow through the tube. With the ordeal almost over, his voice, slightly shaky, broke the silence. So, doctor, when do I die? Only then did the doctor realize why Johnny has hesitated earlier, why his lip had trembled when he'd agreed to donate his blood. You see, he thought giving his blood to his sister meant giving up his life. And in that brief moment, he made his great decision. But Johnny, fortunately, didn't have to die to save his sister. Each of us, however, has a condition much more serious than Mary's. And it required Jesus to not just give his blood, but also his life on the cross of Calvary for us. Uh, this morning we're going to zero in on Jesus' passion, his sacrifice for us. In Acts chapter number 1 and verse number 3, uh, Luke here, as he's uh, writing this book, he says... Uh, in, in verse 3, to whom also he showed himself alive after his passion by many infallible proofs. Uh, when, he, when he says his passion, it's a reference to the, the sacrifice that he made for us on the cross of Calvary. A lot of times uh, as we get ready to get into Easter here in a couple months, uh, we, we uh, talk about the, the week leading up to it. And we call that his passion week or the holy week. Uh, it's his passion, and it, it has to do with his sacrifice and his suffering. Uh, there have been some amazing examples of sacrifice throughout history, like the one we read a moment ago, or I read a moment ago, but none has even come close to comparing to the sacrifice that Jesus made on that old rugged cross nearly 2,000 years ago. And so this morning, we're going to look at his passion. First of all, I want us to notice this morning that his passion was promised. His passion was promised. You see, thousands of years before it ever happened, the suffering and the sacrifice of Jesus was promised. 
We see it first promised all the way back in the Garden of Eden as the Lord issues the consequences for sin as uh, Adam and Eve had uh, taken of the forbidden fruit and, and uh, now they're confronted by the Lord and, and uh, they begin to pass the blame. You remember that when God says to Adam, you know, uh, who, who is responsible? And he says, well, the woman kind of blames his wife, but then he ultimately blames God when he says, whom thou gavest me. So he begins to shift the blame over to his wife and then ultimately back to God. And then, and then he confronts the woman and then she says, well, the, the serpent beguiled me, the serpent deceived me. And so to the serpent, he says in Genesis 3 and verse number 15, he says, and I will put enmity between thee and the woman and between thy seed and her seed. And when it says her seed, that's a reference to Jesus Christ, the virgin born son of God. So he says, and between thy seed and her seed, it shall bruise thy head. Talking about Jesus would bruise the head of Satan. And he says, thou shalt bruise his heel. And so when it says here, thou shalt bruise his heel, that's a reference to the fact that uh, Jesus would be crucified, that Jesus would suffer, that he would give his life as a sacrifice, and, and Satan would, would, would stand over watching going, aha, we got him now. But all that was was bruising his heel, and one day in the future, uh, Jesus Christ will bruise the head of Satan and cast him into the lake of fire Well, he'll be tortured forever and ever. And I'm looking forward to that. So we see the uh, crucifixion, the suffering, the, the passion of Christ was promised all the way back in the Garden of Eden. And throughout the Old Testament, there were many other events that would end up pointing to the cross of Christ. Just after the Lord uh, confronts them and issues out all these different uh, consequences for sin, there in Genesis chapter 3, he does something. He takes an innocent animal and uh, takes its life and uses that skin to cover the bodies of Adam and Eve. And that right there was the first time that an innocent animal had to be slain in order for sin to be covered. And that was, of course, pointing to the fact that one day Jesus, the innocent Lamb of God, would give his life to cover all of our sins once and for all. I think of the uh, story of Adam, or, or Abraham and Isaac and how God told Abraham to take his promised son Isaac up into Mount Moriah and there sacrifice his own son. And Abraham was willing to do so. And uh, in that process, you remember when Isaac said, hey, uh, we're carrying up everything for the sacrifice. We've got everything necessary, but where's, where's the sacrifice? And remember, Abraham said uh, the Lord would provide himself a lamb. A play on words there, but yes, he would provide a ram in the thicket, but ultimately he would provide himself as the lamb one day on the cross of Calvary. And uh, it's pretty amazing that he was asking a father to slay his own son. That's preposterous, you, ask, you say. Well, you know what? God did just that when Jesus died on the cross. 
I think of the Passover lamb. I was reading about it this morning in my Bible reading. The Passover lamb that was slain and that, that innocent animal and the blood was put over the doorposts in order for the uh, death angel as he comes over to see that blood and say, okay, I'm going to pass over this house and they're going to be saved and spared from the wrath of God. And boy, what a picture that is of Jesus, the innocent Passover lamb that was slain and his blood applied to our life. As the death angel comes over us, he says, oh, I'm going to spare their lives. Praise the Lord for what he did for us. And on and on it goes. You look at the tabernacle. We won't get into it this morning, but every aspect of the tabernacle, a lot of it points to the sacrifice of Christ on the cross. A couple passages in the Old Testament that are glaring promises of what Jesus would do uh, there at Calvary. I wanted to take a quick moment and, and uh, show you what these are. And so if you would, take your Bible and turn to Psalm 22. Psalm 22. Out of all the Psalms, this one is the one that really points to uh, the cross of Calvary in a very powerful way. Psalm 22, and uh, we could take the time to read through the whole, the whole psalm. I won't do that this morning. I just want to point out a few of the verses. And, and in your mind, go back, go, go to Calvary, fast forward to Calvary, and you can see this psalm was a very prophetical. And uh, the four Gospels all talk about the cross. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all of them talk about the cross. But they all talk about it from the perspective that they had. So it's from Matthew's vantage point. It's from Luke's vantage point. It's from uh, Mark's perspective and, and how he saw it and John's as well. But in Psalm 22, it really is an inside look from the perspective of the one hanging there on the cross. It, it's kind of an autobiography of the cross. Uh, let's look at a couple of these verses here. Let's look at verse number one. Does this sound familiar? As you think of the, uh, uh, what happened there on the cross, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Why art thou so far from helping me and from the words of my roaring? Jesus, of course, quoted this verse as he was hanging there on that old rugged cross. And then look at verse number six. He says, I am a worm and no man, a reproach of men and despised of the people. All they that see me laugh me to scorn. They shoot out the lip. They shake the head saying, he trusted on the Lord that he would deliver him. Let him deliver him, seeing he delighted in him. But thou art he that took me out of the womb. Thou didst make me hope when I was upon my mother's breast. And so he says, uh, th there's a reference to the humiliation and the mockery that uh, was going on there at the cross. And, and as we look at the cross, we see it played out in perfection. Uh, let's look in verse number 14. He said, I am poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted in the midst of my bowels. My strength is dried up like a potsherd and my tongue cleaveth to my jaws. And thou hast brought me into the dust of death. For dogs have compassed me. The assembly of the wicked have enclosed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. So Psalm 22 is a tremendous prophetical uh, passage that uh, 
Charles Spurgeon, I believe, uh, said this, that he thinks that Jesus quoted the entire uh, 22nd Psalm when he was on the cross. That very well could have been. There's no proof of that. That very well could have been because he did, he did quote verse number one for sure. Um, so Psalm 22 is a, a promise that Jesus would suffer for us and that he would uh, be our sacrifice. Then turn to Isaiah chapter number 52. Isaiah chapter 52, if you would. And here we see, you know, most of us have seen a, a crucifix. You know, we've seen a picture of Jesus hanging on the cross, you know, a painting. Um, some artist's rendition of what Jesus may have looked like. I'm telling you, pretty much all of them are going to be incorrect and inaccurate. Because of what Isaiah 52 and verse number 14 says here. Isaiah 52, 14 says, and, or it says, As many were astonished at thee, his visage was so marred more than any man, and his form more than the sons of men. So here Isaiah, in reference to what Jesus would uh, look like on the cross of Calvary, the Bible says his visage was so marred that he didn't even look like a man. I mean, he was so beat up and tortured. And we'll talk about it here in a moment on the type of torture he, he, he went through. But, uh, you know, all these uh, artists, you know, long flowy hair and, you know, this effeminate. No, no, no. Uh, he, he was tortured. He was beat to a pulp. And uh, he was so marred more than any man. Chapter 53, uh, really the entire chapter. Uh, let's just quake, take a quick time and a quick moment and read through this very quickly. Isaiah 53 is one of the greatest passages in the Bible that points to the fact that Jesus would uh, be our sacrifice. Verse 1, Who hath believed our report, and to whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant, and as a root out of a dry ground. He hath no form nor comeliness. When we shall see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. He is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. Oh, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have Turned every one to his own way, and the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. Uh, verse eight or verse seven says, "He was oppressed, and he was afflicted; yet he opened not his mouth. He is brought as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before her shearers is dumb, so he openeth not his mouth. He was taken from prison and from judgment, and who shall declare his generation? For he was cut off out of the land of the living. For the transgression of my people was he stricken." And he made his grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death because he had done no violence. Neither was any deceit in his mouth. Verse 10, yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He hath put him to grief. When thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed. He shall prolong his days and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see the, of the travail of his soul 
and shall be satisfied by his knowledge, shall my righteous servant justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore will I divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he hath poured out his soul unto death, and he was numbered with the transgressors, and he bare the sin of many, and made intercession for the transgressors. What a beautiful uh, description of what Jesus would do for us there on Calvary. So Isaiah uh, points to the fact that Jesus would one day uh, die for us. Then even in Bethlehem, we fast forward all the way to Bethlehem. There was a big clue uh, there at Bethlehem that pointed to the fact that Jesus came to suffer and to sacrifice for us. Because if you think through the gifts that were presented by those wise men to Jesus there in Bethlehem, one of those gifts was myrrh. And myrrh was mostly used to embalm the dead. And yet it was given to this little baby boy. Why was it given? Because it was given for the fact that Jesus was, was born to die. That was his purpose. And so it was used to embalm the dead, and such was the case for Jesus 33 and a half years later after his death on the cross. Myrrh was used to embalm his body as it was placed in that borrowed tomb. John chapter 19, verse number 39 I'll let you just write down that reference and look at it later. But myrrh is mentioned there as they prepared his body to put in Joseph's tomb. So Jesus was given that gift there in Bethlehem, all promising to the, the fact that Jesus was born to die. So it was promised there in Bethlehem. And then Jesus himself promised it several times during his earthly ministry. One such instance was Luke chapter 9 and verse 22 where he said this, The Son of Man, referring to himself, must suffer many things and be, reje and be rejected of the elders and chief priests and scribes and be slain and, praise the Lord, be raised the third day. So Jesus himself promised that he would go through this uh, time of suffering on the cross of Calvary. So we see that uh, his passion was, first of all, promised. But secondly, I want us to notice this, that his passion was also painful. Uh, it was not a pleasant experience. It wasn't uh, a day at Disneyland. It was a tremendously painful day, and it was painful in multiple different ways. First of all, it was painful mentally. Mentally, it was painful. Uh, to go through all that he went through there on the cross was uh, mentally and emotionally draining. Even before he was at the cross, he, uh, in the Garden of Gethsemane, was uh, contemplating what he was about to do there on the cross. Being God, he knew what we, he was about to go through. And we find him praying in such agony that the Bible says he actually prayed more earnestly that his sweat was as it were, Great drops of blood falling down to the ground. So Jesus there was under tremendous mental anguish and suffering even before he gets to the cross. Just understanding what he was about to accomplish, what he was about to go through. He, was also, he also dealt with tremendous humiliation and mockery. How many of you have ever been made fun of before? Would you raise your hand? Probably most of us have. I'll never forget when I was, I, was, I was thinking about this. I was thinking back to when I, my very first day of seventh grade. And uh, the way it worked in, in uh, where I grew up, 
Uh, we had first through sixth was elementary school, and boy, sixth grade, you know, you kind of feel like you're the top dog, you know, and uh, all the other kids look up to you, and you're kind of the cool kid. Then you go to seventh grade, and then now you're the nerd all of a sudden, like overnight. It's like a, a, a tr- now, of course, hard to believe that I was ever a nerd, right? Um, I, you just have to use your imagination for this, okay? Um, but I remember my first day of, of seventh grade, you know, we get my, I get my schedule, and uh, the first time I'm ever having to, like, change classes. So I have, like, first period, then second period, then third, and I'm having to, like, walk across campus for each of these classes. And so I'm, I'm standing in kind of like the courtyard trying to go, okay, now which way do I go to my next class? And this eighth grader, bless his heart, uh, comes up to me, and he's, he's way bigger than me, so I was going to kind of let him say what he was going to say. He comes up to me, and, and I obviously look lost. And, and I was kind of thinking, oh, great, uh, uh, an eighth grader that's going to come and help this uh, new seventh grader along and to be a blessing to me and kind of usher me to the next class. And, oh, let me show you where... That's not at all what he said. He's like, are you new? And I said, yeah. And he said, are you an alien? And I said, no. But I didn't say it too mean because I didn't want to, like, get it. I didn't want to beat him up in front of all the other kids, you know. No, he was way bigger than me, so I kind of just let him have his way. And then he walked on, and I was like, well, that wasn't very kind. And I eventually figured it out and found my way to class. Uh, I felt a little humiliated and mocked in that moment, but guess what? Still, nothing compared to what Jesus went through on the cro- at the cross. Uh, he was uh, spit upon. He was uh, made fun of, and, and uh, people talked about him, and we, we read a little bit about that in Psalm 22, and how uh, they, would, they would say, oh, you're supposed to be God. Well, why don't you go ahead and come down from the cross if you can If you say you can deliver us all from our sin, why don't you deliver yourself from the cross? Oh, you can't. Okay. So mental pain that he experienced. Think about this. He came unto his own, and the Bible says uh, his own received him not. And And then as he walked into Jerusalem, remember he triumphantly entered into Jerusalem on that donkey. Uh, people began to lay down uh, those palm branches and say, Hosanna, blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. Those same people, uh, just a little bit later on, were the ones yelling out, crucify him, crucify him, stabbing him in the back. Have you ever experienced something like that? Uh, Jesus knows what it's like to experience mental pain. The cross was extremely, uh, excruciatingly painful mentally. But it was also painful physically, of course. And this is what we usually think of when we think of the cross and the physical pain that he endured for us. Uh, Hebrews chapter number 12, our text for the morning, talked about how he endured the cross despising the shame. But it was painful physically. How do we know that? Well, he was scourged with a cat of nine tails. Before he ever was nailed to a cross, he was, uh, the Bible says in John chapter 19 and verse number one, therefore Pilate there took him and scourged him. And scourging is that cat of nine tails. And we were talking about it in Sunday school with the Garrett's a little bit and how uh, the Garrett's uh, had some discipline when they were younger. And uh, maybe had a little bit of belt action going on. 
Well, you know what? None of those things uh, compared to the cat of nine tails that Jesus had to deal with. Uh, basically, a cat of nine tails was a, a leather handle with nine different leather uh, straps and strings attached to that. And, and every couple inches, some sharp objects tied to those, uh, each of those nine different uh, leather strings, like a piece of bone or a piece of rock. And what they would do is they would, they would, they would hang the prisoner from a ceiling usually or at least over a post uh, tied to a post so that the back, the skin on the back was stretched really tight. And then they would take that thing and they would like a baseball player would swing a bat, swing that thing around and it would, it would grab onto the flesh and it would sink into the flesh. And then they, they wouldn't carefully take out each piece out like, oh, sorry about that. Let me get those out real nicely. No, they would rip it tearing open his flesh. Uh, Paul was uh, dealt with this, and uh, he received, uh, the Bible says, 40 save one, or 39 times he was uh, whipped. Well, that's because he was whipped by the Jews, but Jesus was whipped by the Romans, and they didn't have a 39 times and you stop. I mean, it was, it was pretty painful to go through all of that. On top of that, then they began to spit on him and cover his face and to hit him and and to say unto him, prophecy, a prophesy. And the servants did strike him with the palms of their hands. And basically what they would do is they'd cover his head and then they would hit him on the head, hit him in the face. And they said, hey, you're supposed to be God. Who just hit you? Tell us. O thou God or son of God, don't you know? Aren't you supposed to know everything? You're supposed to know everything. Who just hit you? And they continue to do this. Then after that, they put a crown of thorns on his head and used a reed to pound it into his head, driving those thorns down into his scalp. And after that, they made him carry his own cross piece up the hill to to the place of his crucifixion. And there he was crucified. And I want to take a moment, and I've done this a couple times, and read a medical doctor's description of what a crucifixion was. It's a horrible way to die. Horrible way. Here's what the doctor said. At Golgotha, the beam is placed on the ground, and Jesus is quickly thrown backward with his shoulders against the the wood. The legionnaire feels for the depression at the front of the wrists. And he drives a heavy square wrought iron nail through the wrist and deep into the wood. Quickly he moves to the other side and repeats the action, being careful not to pull the arms too tightly, but to allow some flex and movement. The beam is then lifted in place at the top of the post, and the title reading, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews, is nailed into place. And the left foot then is pressed backward against the right foot, and with both feet extended, toes down, a nail is driven through the arc of each. As he pushes himself upward to avoid the stretching torment, he places his full weight on the nail through his feet. Again, there is a searing agony of the nail tearing through the nerves between the metatarsal bones through the feet. As the arms fatigue, great waves of cramps sweep over the muscles, knotting them in deep, relentless, throbbing pain. With these cramps comes the inability to push himself upward. And hanging by his arms, the pectoral muscles are unable to act. Air can be drawn into the lungs, but cannot be exhaled. 
Jesus fights to raise himself in order to get even one short breath. Finally, carbon dioxide builds up in the lungs and the bloodstream and the cramps partially subside. But spasmatically, he is able to push himself upward to exhale and bring in the life-giving oxygen. Hours of this limitless pain, cycles of twisting, joint-rending cramps, intermittent partial asphyxiation, searing pain as tissues, tissue is torn from his lacerated back as he moves up and down against the rough timber. Remember, he had just been scourged. Then another agony begins. A deep crushing pain deep in the chest as the pericardium slowly fills with serum and begins to compress the heart. And this compressed heart is struggling to pump heavy, thick, sluggish blood into the tissues. The tortured lungs are making a frantic effort to gasp in small gulps of air. The markedly dehydrated tissues send their flood of stimuli to the brain. And Jesus gasps, I thirst. He can feel the chill of death creeping through his tissues. And with one last surge of strength, he once again presses his torn feet against the nail, strengthens his legs, takes a deeper breath and utters his seventh and last cry. Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. And while the Bible says he was crucified, that's what he's talking about. He was willing to go through all that physical pain for us. So yes, he suffered mentally, and yes, he suffered physically, but he also uh, suffered and dealt with spiritual pain as well. He, it was painful spiritually. Now, I believe that while the physical was intense, other men had been scourged. Other men had been crucified. But this one, no one can really understand completely the amount of spiritual pain that Jesus endured for you and for me there on the cross. And this was by far the worst part of it all. The Bible simply says in 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 21, For he, God the Father, hath made him, Jesus, to be sin for us, who knew no sin that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. And at, not, at noon, when the sun was at its peak and its brightest, the Bible says the sky actually grew dark. You see, Jesus was crucified at 9 o'clock in the morning. The Bible says he died at 3 o'clock in the afternoon. But from noon to 3 o'clock, the Bible says it was completely dark. Uh, Matthew 27, verse 45 says, Now from the sixth hour, referring to noon... There was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour, which is referring to three o'clock in the afternoon. What does this mean? One commentator wrote, It was during that time that Jesus bore the indescribable curse of our sins. In those three hours were compressed the hell which we deserved, the wrath of God against all our transgressions. We see it only dimly. We simply cannot know what it meant for him to satisfy all God's righteous claims against sin. We only know that in those three hours, he paid the price. He settled the debt and finished the work necessary for man's redemption. See, Jesus knows what it's like to suffer pain, my friend. And so for those of you who 
are also experiencing some pain in your life right now, you are in good company. I want to encourage you to continue to cast your care upon him, for he careth for you. And he knows what it's like to go through mental pain, to go through physical pain, to go through spiritual uh, pain. He knows what it's like, and he's experienced it uh, more than any one of us will ever experience it. So his passion was painful. But then thirdly and quickly this morning, his passion was providing. His passion was providing. You see, his sacrifice and his death on the cross was not in vain. It actually accomplished several things. What did his passion provide? What did it accomplish? Well, it provided, first of all, substitution. Substitution. You see, he was our substitute. When we deserve to die, when we deserve the wrath of God because of our sin, Jesus took our place there on the cross and took the wrath of God for us. We didn't deserve that. Not a one of us. And yet he was the substitute. Mark 10, 45, For even the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give his life a ransom for many. He was our substitute. Isaiah 40, or 53 and verse number 5, we read it a little bit ago, says, But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. And with his stripes we are healed. You see, it was him that took the place that we needed to be. 1 Peter 2.24, Who his own self bear our sins in his own body on the tree, that we being dead to sin should live unto righteousness, by whose stripes you were healed. I should have been the one crucified. I should have been the one scourged. I should have worn those crown of thorns. It should have been me on that cross, not him. No wonder the hymn writer wrote, Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? I'm not worthy, but yet because of his love and his grace, he became my substitute. So it provided a substitute. It provided substitution. It also provided uh, a theological word called propitiation. Uh, it provided that. What does propitiation mean? It means the righteous demands of a holy God were fully satisfied on the cross of Calvary. His death was the satisfactory payment for sin. God was satisfied and His holiness was upheld there on the cross of Calvary. If you went to the store and you saw uh, a trinket that you wanted, and let's say it cost $100, and you go and you bring a gallon of milk and you say, I'd like to buy that trinket for this gallon of milk. And they're going to say, that payment is not acceptable. And, and you go, well, wait a minute, I... I, this is really valuable to me. I really love, and, and for those in my family know that milk is valuable to me. It's got to be 2%, though. Um, I love my milk. Um, and, uh, well, I'm going to use this to pay for that $100 trinket. I, they're going to say, I'm sorry, that's not a satisfactory payment. And when it came to sin, the innocent animals was not a satisfactory payment for all of mankind. That's why they needed to continue those sacrifices as time went on. 
because it was not a satisfactory payment, but the sacrifice that Jesus made on the cross was the ultimate sacrifice, and it completely satisfied all the righteous demands of a holy God. Romans 3 and verse 25 says, whom God, talking about Christ, have set forth to be a propitiation through faith in his blood to declare his righteousness for the remission of sins that are past the forbearance of God. He provided in his sacrifice the propitiation, the acceptable payment. He brought not a gallon of milk, but he brought that $100 bill that says, here's the right amount of payment. So he provided that. He also provided forgiveness for us. Colossians chapter number 2 and verse number 13. And you being dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh, hath he quickened together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses, blotting out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, which was contrary to us, and took it out of the way, nailing it to his cross. See, because of the cross, God can offer you and God can offer me forgiveness for our sins. And those of us who have believed on Christ, the Bible says he remembers our sins no more. Psalm 103 and verse number 12, As far as the east is from the west, so far hath he removed our transgressions from us. You see, Jesus, the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sins of the world, if you're in Christ, he has taken away your sins and removed them as far as the east is from the west and has decided that he's going to remember them no longer. Aren't you thankful for that? He's not going to bring up sins that you've committed in the past and he's also not going to bring sins that you're going to commit in the future and say, hey, you're going to be judged for that. No, he has forgiven us. But not only that, he also, uh, in his death, has also provided justification for us. Well, what is justification? It's, it's the other aspect. So yes, he forgives us of all the wrong that he does, but now he gives us, through his grace, justification, which means this. It's the legal act in which God, the judge, declares the believing sinner righteous. He says, Eric, not only are you forgiven, but actually you're righteous. Someone has described justification or as this, just as if I've never sinned. I've been justified. And uh, that's how God looks at me. He doesn't look at me as a sinner that's been forgiven as much as he looks at me as a sinner who has been declared righteous. And God, in his mercy and in his grace, has done that. Romans chapter 5, verses 1 and 9, you can write down those references and look at them later. Uh, but he has provided justification. He's also provided redemption. He's also provided redemption. You see, he has purchased me. He has redeemed me. 1 Corinthians 6 and verse number 20, he says, For ye are bought with a price. You say, what price was that? Well, we just talked about the, the pain that Jesus went through and experienced for you and for me. That's how much he paid for you and for me, and, and uh, we're bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. Have you heard, ever heard the story of the little boy who built a, a sailboat? See, he built the boat and had it all fixed up. It was perfect. He, he, he painted it. It looked great. He took it to the lake and for its maiden voyage and uh, pushed it in hoping that it would sail. And sure enough, a, a wisp of breeze came and filled that little sail, and, and it billowed and went rippling along the waves. 
Suddenly, before the little boy knew it, the boat was out of reach. Even though he waded in fast and tried to grab it, it, it kept going and he watched it float away. He hoped maybe the breeze would shift and it would come sailing back. Instead, he watched it go farther and farther until it was completely gone. And we went, he went home crying. His mother asked, what's wrong? Didn't it work? He said, it, it worked, but it worked too well. <laughs> well, sometime later, the little boy was downtown and happened to walk past a, a secondhand store. And there in the window, he saw something that caught his eye that looked vaguely familiar. It was his boat. It was unmistakably his, so he went in and said to the proprietor, Hey, uh, that's my boat. So he walked to the window, picked it up, and started to leave with it. But the owner of the shop said, uh, <clears throat> wait, wait a minute, Sonny. That's actually my boat. I bought it from someone. The boy said, uh, no, actually, it's my boat. You see, I made it. And he showed him the little scratches in the marks where he hammered and filed. The man said, I'm sorry, Sonny. If you want it, you're going to have to buy it. Well, the poor little guy didn't have any money, but he worked hard and saved his pennies. And finally, one day, he had enough money. So he went in and bought the little boat. As he left the store holding the boat close to him, he was heard saying, you're my boat. You're twice my boat. First, you're my boat because I made you. And second, you're my boat because I bought you. And look, if you ever think that you aren't worth much, and if you think you're just cheap, remember what God thinks of you. He thinks you're his, twice his. First, you're his because he made you. The second, you're his because he bought you on the cross. He paid a price to redeem you. One more story of redemption, and we'll wrap this message up. In your mind, if you would, go back in time about 150 years to the days before the Civil War. Imagine you're visiting on the great cities of the South like Savannah, Atlanta, Birmingham, Jackson. As you approach the center of town, you hear a commotion as a crowd gathers for a public auction for a slave. And you gather around to watch the proceedings. The first thing you notice in the crowd is an uncouth, foul-mouthed, loud, boisterous man who you know by reputation only as the meanest, cruelest, most hateful man around. You also notice in the crowd another man who stands out for his dignity, genteel mannerisms and soft-spoken tone, and recognize him also by reputation as a most kind, gentle, and gracious man. Both men, along with the crowd, wait for the auction to begin. Finally, the auctioneer steps to the podium and begins rattling his words as the first item to be sold is brought to the auction block. There before you is a beautiful young black girl about 20 years old. Her dress is old and torn, but remarkably clean. She is obviously filled with anxiety and fear as the bidding begins. From the outset, the loud, obnoxious man seemed to have his evil, leecherous eyes set on this lovely, innocent young lady. She obviously knew of his reputation and cringed in fear as he opened the bidding. Well, when the kind gentleman saw her fear, he too placed a bid. Soon only these two men were involved in the bidding as the price of the girl rose higher and higher. Finally, the evil man bowed out of the bidding when he realized that the price of the girl was more than he was willing to pay. When the auctioneer closed the bidding, the kind gentleman paid the price for his purchase. He was handed the bill of sale and turned to leave. 
The young girl started to follow her new master. He then turned to her and asked, Where are you going, young lady? Why, I'm, I'm, I'm going with you, she responded. You bought me and, and I belong to you. Oh, you misunderstood, the man said. I didn't buy you to make you my slave. I bought you to set you free. Then he took the bill of sale and wrote across in big block letters, F-R-E-E. Signed his name and gave it to the girl. I, I don't understand, the girl said. You, you mean I am free? Yeah, you're free. I can go wherever I want and do as I please? Exactly. You're free. Mister, I don't know who you are, but no one has ever shown such love and kindness to me. If I am free to do as I please, then nothing would please me more than to go with you and serve you till the day I die. And that day, that girl went home with a man by the name of Abraham Lincoln. Not as his slave, but as his willing servant. Song that uh, we sometimes sing here at Cornerstone, Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Paul said it this way in 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 15, in that he died for all that they which live should not henceforth live unto themselves, but unto him which died for them and rose again. You see, when I realize the price that Jesus paid for me, I should be willing to follow him wherever and however till the day I die. To be faithful to him as he was faithful to the Lord's call upon his life there on the cross. He could have called 10,000 angels to take him down. Instead, he stayed on that cross for you and for me. And because of that, I should live for him in this life. What should I do with this message? What are the takeaways for us this morning? First of all, if you're here and you have never believed on Christ, look, he died for you because he loves you. And there's no other way to the Father but through Jesus Christ because he was the only one who died on the cross for you. Come to him and be saved today. And for those of us who have, let's make sure that we spend time thanking the Lord for the sacrifice that he made for us, for his passion. Thanks be unto God for his unspeakable gift. And those of us who are saved, let's serve him. The song we sang a little bit ago in the service, um, Love So Amazing, So Divine. It demands my soul, demands my life, and it demands my all. And it demands yours too. Uh, let's give him our all today. Let's pray and uh, we'll conclude our service. Lord, thank you so much for your love for us. Thank you for how you displayed your love for us on the cross of Calvary. The Bible says God commendeth his love towards us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Or thank you for being willing to do that. And thank you for all of that provided in our life, the uh, adequate substitution, adequate payment for our sin. Thank you for the forgiveness and the justification that provides. And, and thank you for purchasing us. Lord, help us to, like that young lady did, decide to follow you and serve you till the day we die, not because of obligation, but because of just an appreciation for what you've done for us. And Lord, if there's one here today that 
or under the sound of my voice who has never trusted Christ as their Savior, please, Lord, may today be the day of salvation for them. May they come to Christ and be born again before it's eternally too late. Lord, I pray that uh, you would help us to now go and live this message, to go and share this message with those around us. Share the good news that Jesus died for us because he loves us.